I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for those us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he has exerted in, in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again. Thank you for reading. Um, my name is Michael, as Pastor Chris said. Um, my wife's name is Christy. We are coming to you from uh, the east side of Michigan, uh, in between Flint and Ann Arbor. Um, Christy has been feeling a little bit under the weather uh, this towards the end of last week and through this weekend, so thank you for your added grace. Um, we've had a enjoyable time with the weather and seeing the city. Um, I think my favorite part was the, the park. I think it's Sam Lawrence Park where you could see the whole city in Toronto. So um, thank you all for your hospitality and grace um, in our visit. Well, this morning, the word of God comes to us from the book of Ephesians. Now, towards the end of the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul gives thanks and he prays that the people of Ephesus might know three things. First, he prays that they might know the hope to which they've been called. The second, he wants them to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance. And third, he wants his people to know God's incomparably great power for those who believe in him. Well, we're going to be talking about the last on that list today, God's incomparably great power for those who believe. This is where Paul spends the majority of his time in this passage, so this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Now, we proclaim this power every time we profess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. But do we know do we know what this means for us? Do we realize the power in these words? Well, I think in theory, we might know what God's power for us and in us means, but I don't know if this is our reality. Does this have a bearing on every part of our days? Well, this morning, we'll be considering God's power for the church, and we'll be asking how this relates to discipleship. As God's redeemed people, what does it mean 
to walk in step with Christ using this power. So that's where this ship is headed this morning. But before we get going too far, please join me in prayer. Spirit of the living God, we ask that you would fall afresh on us. Open our hearts, open our ears to receive your word this morning with joy. Amen. Well, I think in some of the conversations that we've been having, try to drop that. Some of the conversations we've been having, I've mentioned that uh, we're from the east side of Michigan. Um, I grew up about an hour northwest of Detroit. So in childhood, we would go to Detroit for Red Wings games, but mostly for Tigers games. Go Tigers. <laughs> well, I remember going into the city of Detroit and it looking a little bit rough. And then the economic downturn of 2008, 2009, 2010 really didn't help the city out. Uh, we're talking abandoned buildings, um, condemned properties, high rates of crime, high unemployment. So we moved back after about being gone for a decade, and just this past winter, um, we took a free walking tour of downtown Detroit, my wife, my parents, and some friends. And it was encouraging to see some of these recently renovated buildings. It was encouraging to see city parks that were well-kept, and to see people who were actually walking around the downtown area, going to the restaurants, and enjoying some of the city life. But as we made our way on this tour, we kept hearing this one name. This one name kept coming up. Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert. The guide kept pointing out building after building and lot after lot that were owned by this one man. Well, Dan Gilbert has invested over one and a half U.S. billion dollars, that's billion with a B, into the city of Detroit. That's over 75 properties that are owned by the founder of Quicken Loans. That's over 10 million square feet of property that are owned by this one man. But Dan Gilbert has power in the city of Detroit. Now, it would have been something like this in first century Ephesus. Now, of course, we're not talking about skyscrapers and high-rise apartment buildings, but we're talking about temples and and gateways and porticos and vestibules. All of these would have been reminders to the people of the emperor's power and of the emperor's favor. See, the, bo the booming port city of Ephesus had Augustus Caesar to thank for the city's prosperity. He was the one who made Ephesus the capital city of Western Asia Minor. He was the one responsible for bringing this time of peace in the Roman Empire known as the Pax Romana, when the economy grew and the arts flourished. Augustus had power in Ephesus. The calendar was redesigned to center around his birthday. Coins had images of the emperor on them as one who was victorious in battle. And altars had images inscribed on them where the emperor was standing with his feet over his enemies. Augustus was spoken of as a god. He was spoken of as a savior. He was the one who brought good tidings to the world. 
Well, the emperor and his family were worshipped as gods, not just Augustus Caesar, but his successors after his death. So what all of this communicated to the people of Ephesus was that the rule of the emperor is eternal. It's all-powerful, and it is without end. These are the conditions of first century Ephesus. When the people thought about and spoke about power, they talked about the Roman emperor. They didn't talk about Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I ask you, people of God, aren't we living in a similar situation today? It doesn't seem like the triune Godhead is in power. It doesn't seem like the ascended Christ is sitting at a place of ultimate power and authority at the Father's right hand. Now I ask you, when you think of power, who comes to your mind? We think of those with money and those with influence. Now I'd invite you, not now but sometime later, to check out Forbes' list, 2016, of the most powerful people. Not saying that these leaders are good or bad, this is just the list of most powerful people as deemed by Forbes. You'll find influential leaders on the list, like Russia's Vladimir Putin, America's Donald Trump, North Korea's Kim Jong-un, and yes, Canada's own. Justin Trudeau made the list at number 66. Well, you'll find CEOs of major companies on the list. Jeff Bezos, who is the CEO of Amazon. Mark Zuckerberg, who is the CEO of Facebook. Yes. Dan Gilbert, $1.5 billion invested in Detroit. Didn't even make the list. Well, what does this say to us? It says that those with money, those running successful organizations, those with wide-reaching influence, these are the ones with the power. And the ones with the power, they seem to capture our attention. They seem to captivate us. They set the tone for how this world runs. So if you want to make it in this life, you have to play by their rules. More money, more influence, more success is equal to more power. Well, it doesn't matter how you get it. Run people over if they get in your way. And those casualties along the way, well, that's just the price you have to pay by when you play by these rules. Everywhere we look, we are confronted with images and ideas of what it means to be powerful. Sex is power. Weapons are power. Beauty and fame are power. Well, it's hard not to buy into these messages. They slowly seep past our conscious awareness and they influence and they begin to dictate the way we act and the way we think in this world. But what does God tell us through this letter to the Ephesians? In verse 21, we read that Jesus Christ is in the power seat. Jesus Christ is the one who is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Jesus Christ is the one whose name is named above all names, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. 
So the intention of the author is clear. God holds all of the power. God holds all of the power. And he exercises and he displays this power in the resurrection and in the ascension of Christ the Lord. And now Christ the Lord sits at the Father's right hand in this place of ultimate authority and this place of ultimate power. I don't know if you picked up on it earlier, but the claims of Christ made in this passage are directly opposed to the claims made of the emperor. Remember that the emperor was called Savior, that the emperor was called God. The emperor eternally ruled the empire. The emperor was the one who was thought to be responsible for bringing peace into the known world. He was the one who was victorious over enemies with his feet on top of his enemies. But Paul says, no. Paul says, no, Christ is the Savior. In Christ we have redemption through his blood. In chapter 2 of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are told that Christ brings peace between God and humanity. Christ rules not only in this age, but also in the age to come from our passage. Christ is the eternal ruler, and Christ has all things put under his feet. Christ is victorious. His is the power. Well, Augustus and the emperors after him may claim this place of power. People with money, people with influence today may claim to have this place of power. But the reality is that God's is the power. In church, the totally amazing thing about our passage today, the thing that should blow all of our hats off if we were wearing them and get us all squirming in our seats, is that this power is for us. This power is for the church. God places his church in a position of power. Verse 19, we read, God's incomparably great power for us who believe, which is the church, the fullness of his body, him who fills everything in every way. God places the church in a position of power. But don't be deceived. This is not power as the world defines it. This is not money power. This is not sex power. This is not real estate power or even political power. This is power for the sake of participating in God's plan for creation. This is power to join the Spirit in carrying out God's will for humanity. And what is God's plan? Well, if we back up and look at verse 10 of chapter 1, we read that God's plan is to unite all things together under Christ. It is God's plan to sum up all things together in the Lord. So what does it mean for the church to use this power? The same power that raised Christ from the dead and saw Christ ascend up into heaven. 
What does it mean to use this power in line with God's purposes for his creation and humanity? Well, as I was studying for this sermon, I came across one word that was used by two different theologians. The first was John Stott, who is a well-known Anglican theologian from our time. And the second is a lesser-known man, uh, William Milligan, a Scottish theologian from the mid-1800s. Well, both of these men use the word experimentally when talking about God's power, using God's power experimentally. Stott says we are to lay hold of this power experimentally for ourselves by faith. And now Milligan's quote from the mid-1800s, I'm not going to read that because it's a little dense. But both men use this word experimentally in the sense that this power is something that we're putting into practice, something that we're trying out in our lives. Now we experiment not as if we're junior chemists, not as if we're haphazardly grabbing random chemicals off the shelves, mixing them together, waiting for it to blow up in our faces. No, we start from a solid foundation of faith. We start from a foundation of experience and knowledge. In the beginning parts of our passage, Paul says that he has heard about the faith of the Ephesian people in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this is our faith too. The Spirit has given us true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit has opened up our eyes and enlightened our hearts so that we might know and believe that Christ is Lord. So when we talk about experimentally laying hold of God's power, it's an ongoing process of living out our faith. God is working in us to grow us into mature disciples, disciples who are willing to allow the Spirit to use us to bring all things together under Christ. Experimentally laying hold of the power of God must go beyond mere intellectual assent. It must go beyond some of these cognitive reasonings that we get ourselves wrapped up in sometimes. It's something that we put into practice as we continue living these lives of faith. Now there's a story that I recently came across that hopefully will help to illustrate what some of this experimenting looks like. There was a man, Hector. He adopted a young girl from a broken family. Now in her new setting, her new environment, this young girl flourished. She grew up. She moved out. She got a job working with troubled youth that came from broken families just as she had. Well, one night, a crack addict broke into this woman's house. He was looking for money to get his fix. Now, he broke into the house, and she just so happened to be there. She tried talking to him. She tried to get him help, but sadly, he assaulted her, and he killed her for drug money. Now, of course, when Hector, the father, found out about this, he was deeply hurt. He was frustrated. He was furious, and he wanted this killer to experience the same pain and the same agony that he had to experience, the same pain that his family was going through. 
Now here is where this experimenting comes in. Hector couldn't get this killer or these images out of his mind. But instead of living in this rage day after day, he decided to find out about the killer's life. Hector is a Christian, and as a Christian, just as we believe, he believes that all people are created in God's image. So he chose to find out about this man. He learned that the killer's name was Ivan. He learned that Ivan was born in a mental institution. He learned that when Ivan was young, Ivan's mother took him and his siblings to a swimming pool and tried to drown him because that's what she heard the voices telling her to do. Now Ivan escaped, of course, but he had to watch as his mother drowned his sister. And now Ivan was living on the streets, and now Ivan was at the court trial all alone. Now Hector, the father, had the chance to speak at this trial, address the court with his last words. And with his last words, he turned and he faced Ivan, this man who killed his daughter, and he says, I wish for you to find God's peace. In his pain and in his anger, I wish for you to find God's peace. Now after the court, the, after the court trial, the father again couldn't get, Hector, couldn't get the killer Ivan out of his mind. He had somehow been touched by their interaction. So he decided to write Ivan a letter in prison experimenting with God's power. Ivan wrote back. He sent Ivan a Christmas package in prison, experimenting with God's power. Well, eventually, the father visited Ivan in prison because that's what you do when you begin to care about someone, he says. Now, he even hugged the man at the end of their visit. But don't get me wrong. Hector could not believe he was acting like this towards the man that killed his daughter. He called himself crazy for behaving in this way. But the power of God was obviously working through him. Now, I don't know if Hector the father knew this, but it seemed like he was testing it out along the way. He was experimenting with the power of God. Now, just how far can someone go to show love for their enemy? During one of their interactions, Ivan the killer said to Hector, he said, I felt God abandoned me when I killed your daughter. When I killed your daughter, I felt God abandoned me. But, he continued, I heard God's voice again with your words of compassion at the trial. This is the power of God working through his people to bring all things together under Christ. This father experimented with the power of God, and God used this power to bring restoration. It's only the power of God that could have worked through this situation, the power that sees a father hugging the man who killed his daughter. Now God places the church in a position of power with Christ as our head. Now Christ used his power in ways that didn't make sense to the world. He conquered through sacrifice. Christ took up 
God's power and died to himself so that we might have life. And just as Christ used his power in ways that didn't make sense to the world, so do we. As Christ loved us by God's power, we love others. As Christ gave his life up for others by God's power, so do we. We give up our time, our resources. By God's power, we give up our lives for others. And as Christ showed compassion for the outcasts and for the marginalized, by God's power, so do we. We are all in a position to use God's power to bring all things together under Christ. Now this isn't done through force, of course. This is done through love. When we talk about growing into mature disciples, we're talking about a pretty messy business. Yes, discipleship happens in worship, happens in church, it happens in our Bible studies, but the majority of our lives are spent in family, time with family and time in the workplace. And we all know how trying and how messy family life can get and how messy work can get. But this is where maturity happens. This is where growing up takes place. As Eugene Peterson says, maturity is accomplished only in relationship with others. We are called to grow as Christ's disciples following the way of our Lord, following the way of self-sacrificial love. We are called to exercise God's power in these relationships, continuing to live life by faith, experimenting with our use of God's power. And every day, every day our lives call for the use of God's incomparably great power for us who believe. Maybe it's loving someone through a tough situation. Even in our conversations over the past two days, I've talked to a couple of you that have said that first CRC and the community here has helped you walk through tough situations. Maybe it's stepping out in love in ways that scare us or ways that make us feel uncomfortable. Well, maybe just for now, experimenting with God's power means recognizing that our enemy is someone who has also been created in God's image. We are invited to participate with the Spirit of God as he sums up all things together in Christ. God gives power to his church. The ascended Christ rules from heaven. It is seated at the right hand of the Father and empowers his people to carry out his mission in this world. So know that the one who first brought us to this faith is continuing this good work, calling us to grow up into Christ and making use of this power that he gives to the church for his glory, for our good, and for the sake of this world. Please pray with me. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for your work in this world. 
Thank you that you hold all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. As we wait and yearn for all things to be finally placed under your feet, we ask that your power might work mightily through us, through us who believe on your name. Help us as we take hold of this power experimentally through faith for the sake of your world. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing the church's one foundation.